problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. She said it's really not my habit to intrude. Furthermore, I hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued. But I'll repeat myself. At the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. 50 ways to leave your lover. You just slip out the back, Jack. The artless Paul Simon. You don't need to be coy, Roy. You see what I did there? I shouldn't. When you have to draw attention to it, it's not as clever as you thought. Simon and Garfunkel, of course, Paul and Art were a longtime duo. In fact, one of the best-selling duos in music history. Coincidentally, upon boarding the bus with the Kitchener Rangers on the weekend, our driver, Moosey, loves his music, had some Simon and Garfunkel playing. And we play this particular song from the artless Paul Simon because it is Simon's first U.S. number one hit as a solo artist. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover starts a three-week run at number one on this date, February the 7th, 1976. So 48 years ago, Paul Simon takes 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover to number one. He thought it was a more humorous way to document the demise of his first marriage. Paul Simon is now on marriage number three. He was married to... Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, for a minute in the 1980s and now has been married to Edie Brickell for the past 35 years now. Well, 30 plus anyway. Good for Paul. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, a song that we choose to start the show with today. And as you know, the moment we begin, our phone lines are open. And wouldn't you know, Gail is on the line early this morning. Good morning, Gail. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Well, I'm flipping awesome, I guess, except there's a few concerns that I'm very, very deeply concerned about. Wow. Okay. What are you deeply concerned about, Gail? Well, uh, um, just recently, our building has been sold uh, to apparently some fancy-dancy real real estate lawyer in Toronto, and he has proceeded to give many of the people here notice to get out. Now, the problem is about 50%, I would say, or more of our building is seniors. And uh, I was talking to two of them yesterday. One of them is about ready to commit suicide because she just doesn't know where to go or what to do or who to turn to. And, uh, you know, I think this, that we should make the public aware that, that this is going on because these people don't have, these people just don't have any place to go. Where, um, do, you, where do you live, Gail? 250 Frederick Street. On, on Frederick Street. 250 yes. Frederick. Whereabouts are we talking here? On Frederick, is that um, near Lancaster? Yes, near between Lancaster and Edna. Okay. Yes. So, um, yeah. So there, and, and apparently uh, now this is just a rumor, but I've been told that there's a meeting. I haven't been invited to it. Uh, Wednesday the fifteenth at St. John's Evangelical Church, twenty three Water Street North at six thirty p.m. And I just think if we could get a whole whack load of people, or even maybe some news coverage there, um, because I, you know if this is the way the world's going, I mean. 
seniors, I know that there's too many of us. We probably live too long. Whoa, whoa, there's not too many of you. Slow down there. Well, you know what? It's like, it's just like, they just have no empathy whatsoever. I mean, these people, you can't just do that to someone who's 80 years old and expect them to take it well. Have you spoken to your city councillor, Gail? Well, I have I have not. I did try to get through to the MPP's office. Um, and I, I'm like, again, I'm just not sure where to go or who to call or, or what to do. So, All right. It, when is that meeting again? 23 Water Street North, when? Yes, and it's on the 15th, Wednesday at 630. Uh, the 15th, that's next Thursday. Yeah, well, whatever. They don't okay. Think, yeah. February yeah. 15th, 630. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Now she said Wednesday. So I, you know what? I, I've got to confirm all of that. Okay. Um, um, and I, and I, I didn't realize I was going to get right on the news right now. <laughs> well, you're right on the news right now. This is, I guess, how it works this morning. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, yeah. Gail, thanks for sharing this story with us. And uh, we will certainly keep our eyes and ears on it. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. We enjoy listening to your show. I enjoy having you listen. And please remember, you matter. There are not too many of you. We need you in this city. Oh, goodness. Well, it doesn't feel that way, but thank you. All right, Gail. Enjoy your day. You too. God thank- bless. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for the call. Anybody heard of the latest renoviction? I think we just discovered it on Frederick Street in Kitchener. If I'm correct, that would be our newest Kitchener City Councilor. Uh, Stephanie Stretch in Ward 10. So we'll dig more into that. Obviously, there's not going to be a building uh, sold, demolished, whatever the case may be, uh, and people moved out without there being some kind of uproar and outcry. So we will indeed keep our eyes and ears on that moving forward. Uh, One more quick thing I wanted to share before we get to our Farwell Show 5 for this morning. And that is connected to yesterday's show. You may recall we spent the day undertaking uh, the great ice cream sandwich experiment. And though I am not proud of myself, I did indeed, after the show ended at one yesterday, eat said ice cream sandwich that had been sitting in the studio for seven hours to see if it would melt. It's been documented. You can see the video for yourself. I won't go any further. Visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Mike Farwell Show. And if I'm being honest, because it's the only way I ever want to be with you, uh, my tummy was a little bit, just a little bit off last night, uh, connected to consuming the ice cream sandwich that had been sitting out in the studio for seven hours. I'd say that's a distinct possibility. Let's get to your Farwell Show 5 for this Wednesday morning, the 7th of February. Number one, Toronto Maple Leafs Captain John Tavares is taking the Canada Revenue Agency to court in a fight over more than $8 million in taxes and interest. The government says Tavares owes. The appeal claims the CRA incorrectly calculated the taxes Tavares owes. On the $15.3 million signing bonus the Leafs paid him in 2018. It's tough to be rich in this country. Number two on your Farwell Show 5 this morning. Regional Council has voted to reinstate funding for the museum in downtown Kitchener to previous levels. The key cultural institution will be topped up by more than $250,000 after what Council called an unintended consequence 
of an across-the-board reduction of 10% in spending to generate savings. Number three, a 66-year-old cyclist struck by the driver of a vehicle while crossing Victoria Street late Monday night has died from his injuries. Number four on your Farwell Show 5 this morning, the region of Waterloo and the cities of Cambridge, Kitchener, and Waterloo will partner once again with Neuron Mobility for a second year with shared e-scooters and e-bikes coming back in April this year. The region will work with the cities on a plan to expand the service area and station locations, meantime parking facilities and compliance, as well as riding rules and etiquette will be uh, a focus for the year. And number five on your Farwell Show 5 this morning. You may have noticed some of your favorite snacks getting a little spicier lately. Well, now soft drink giant Coca-Cola wants in on the act. Coke is introducing Coca-Cola Spiced, the first new permanent offering to its North American portfolio in three years. Coca-Cola Spiced joins Flamin' Hot Cheetos and Sweetheart Starbursts in the spicy snack game. Coca-Cola Spiced will be available as of February the 19th. That is 9.14. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Thanks to Donna for the excellent work quickly pulling up on Google Images. I was trying to picture that building that Gail mentioned when she said it was on Frederick between Lancaster and Edna. That was too many blocks for me to figure out exactly what 250 Frederick was. But it's the big white building, very close to Lancaster, actually. It's many stories, one of the tallest in the area. Uh, I don't know how many stories exactly. But anyway, it's it's a very tall apartment building. Been there for a long time. I think you're basically at the corner of Frederick and Samuel. Or, or at the intersection of Frederick and Samuel. And I'm trying to remember this, the name of the street right next to the building. Anyway, it's very near Frederick and Lancaster. And Gail says, uh, people living in that building, many of whom are seniors, are facing the prospect of being moved out as the building has been purchased by a highfalutin property developer. So there's a public meeting coming up. We will keep our ears and eyes on this because the only thing I can see possible here is that there is some sort of renovation that would be done and that would give the new landowner, I guess, the the right to move people along until the renovation is done. We'll have to look into that more. But it's a very big building with a lot of people inside and it will be interesting to see what becomes of this. Let's go back to the phones. Kyle is with us this morning. Hello, Kyle. Hello. Hey, I just wanted to quickly ask you, so you ate that ice cream sandwich yesterday. How did it taste? Like, like your usual? Like, did it still have... Are you still there? You're, you're, yeah, you're cutting up. Sorry, did the ice cream sandwich taste good? The ice cream sandwich, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, it was pretty good. You, you should watch the video to get the full effect because... The the texture really caught me off guard with my my first bite because it just I can't even really describe it. It was almost like cotton or something. You didn't not the consistency you'd expect from an ice cream certainly. But then I realized well the flavor's still there. It's still full of sugar, so so I ate it. 
Well, I'm surprised because I wouldn't have done it. Even though I said yesterday I would have, I wouldn't have done it. Even though I put ketchup on ace, everything, don't take advice from somebody that puts ketchup on this. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said yesterday to do it, and now you're saying you wouldn't have? Yeah, I just wanted to see you do it. (laughs) You're you're taking one for the team, Mike, so that's all i got to say. Never take advice from somebody that puts ketchup on everything. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. All right, Kyle. Appreciate the call, I guess. Thanks for nothing. I thought you had my back yesterday. And listen, I know that I'm old enough to know better. Like, I am a 50-plus-year-old man, and what a juvenile thing to do. But I'm going to stick to it having been in the interests of scientific research. We carried out a little experiment yesterday, and I took it right through to its conclusion. So, again, the video is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Mike Farwell Show. Uh, I wanted to share quickly... Uh, some feedback I got on the show yesterday from John. And this is my favorite kind of feedback, so I wanted to share it with you. Uh, To Mike at 570news.com. John says, I got to say, I stopped listening to the show. The 12 to 1 segment with the calls, the regular same old callers drive me insane listening to them. And then John actually lists our regular callers and why you drive him insane. And I just want to say this about our regular callers. We love them. They're like characters on the show. They are a part of virtually every talk show. So I get that you don't have to like everybody's opinion. You don't have to like my opinion either. But, you know, we're all part of the show. Uh, I'd rather listen to guests, John's email says. Also, the show needs to be more uplifting, not always organizations looking for money. I get it if they need funding, but... I stopped listening to news as it's depressing. I find the same on the talk show. I'm sorry that the reality of our economic times is depressing to you, John, and I totally get you wanting perhaps from time to time to take a break from that. I guess I will go back to FM and listen to classic rock. Now, this is the thing that got me the most. This is why I love feedback like this, because John gets frustrated with the regular same old callers, so he's going to go back to FM radio and listen to classic rock. Where he's going to say, where he's going to hear the regular same old songs. And don't get me wrong, I love me some classic rock. It's like comfort food, right? That's why we keep going back to it because it just gives us that comfort. But it's the same song, the same music universe. But that's fine if that's what you want to do. The one thing I will add to this, though, with a with a radio station and a radio program like this one, if you don't love what you're hearing. You literally have the power in your own fingers and on your own lips to change it because you could become one of those regular or semi-regular callers and then bring a perspective to the show that you think is missing. You think that's how it works here. As I mentioned already, the moment we start the show every day, the phone lines open, email is always here, our social media feeds are flooded every day. Be a part of it. Like, you can actually change the programming you have the power to do that by yourself with your participation in the show but if classic rock is more your jam again fill your boots i love classic rock too i'm sorry that i won't have you around but remember remember you can be a part of it and you can actually change the show to something that you like better because you'd be on it saying things that you like to hear and nancy thank you for the email corner of frederick and gordon street where that big white building is that apparently has been sold and many people living in that building seniors among them are concerned about their future shelter in our community lots going on this morning on the mike farwell show this is city news 570 
Hey, Katie, thanks very much for the email to Mike at 570news.com. Mike, I love the regular callers and the sense of community that your show has created. Katie, regular listener and maybe one day caller. Katie, Katie, you know, you know how we love our first time callers on this show. Yeah, yes, yes. It's one of our favorite things. And if you're a first time caller, then sometime you can be a second time caller. I anxiously await that first call. But thank you for enjoying the community that our regulars create. And if you're just one of those passive other 43 listeners on the show, that's also okay. You're more than welcome in the Mike Farwell Show community. We're going to get you an update from the City News Centre. And then speaking of community, let's talk about that community pantry. The little pantry that is continuing to create controversy in a Cambridge neighborhood. That story is coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. You're listening to City News 570. A chance for us this morning to follow up on a story... You would have heard during All News Mornings with Christine Clark and Mark Douglas. That story being of the free little pantry on Jarvis Street in Cambridge. You may recall this story first coming to light back not long before Christmas. And here we are again, not long after Christmas. And Audrey Hill, who created and continues to operate the pantry, joins the program. If I can kind of... Bring us all up to speed as to where we're at right now, Audrey. Before Christmas, the city had sent you a letter saying the pantry has to be removed by the end of the month. Then, you know, following the uproar, outcry, whatever it is we're going to call it, the city said it was going to work with you and try to find a solution to this. And fast forward to this week, and now you have another letter from the city That's basically saying remove it before the end of March or we're going to remove it for you at your cost. Kind of like get rid of it by March or else. Does that kind of sum things up as to where we're at? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, You're right. We had sort of gone back and forth with the city about our pantry um, kind of over the Christmas holidays. I think the notice came around December 15th. So we were scrambling a little bit as, you know, many people were out of office and on holidays and things like that. And then, um, yeah, the the city had waived the December 31st deadline, which we found out uh, from a news report that they had waived that and that they were, you know, supposedly happy to work with us. We were offered, um, after I requested a few times, we were offered the opportunity to apply for a permit, which I did. I submitted our permit application. I think it was due on January 19th. So I submitted it around there, um, and everything seemed like it was good. It seemed like the city was going to work with us. Everyone was feeling really optimistic. And then, yes, we got a notice stating that the pantry needs to be removed by March 31st, where the city will remove it um, and bill us for the cost of the removal. And what is the criteria that the city is explaining to you for removal? Why does it have to be removed? So what the city has said in their latest uh, letter from engineering is that um, the bylaw states that no person shall install, construct, or permit anything that obscures or obstructs access to fire hydrants, 
post office boxes, transformers, or other installations belonging to the city, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so essentially what they're saying is that it's now, they believe it's on city property and it is potentially blocking utility access or things of that nature, uh, which we've never had a problem with. Are you aware, Audrey, of any problems around the pantry generally that might have led to the initial complaint that brought the city to the neighborhood to check it out in the first place? So the initial complaint came from one of my neighbors who had stated that uh, she felt concerned that the pantry was bringing in, um, I think what she said was homeless people, um, and that it was potentially elevating crime in the neighborhood, which we have not seen or witnessed. Um, Some of the things that she referenced, um, like I think, for example, she had referenced her granddaughter's bike being stolen, which had actually happened a few years prior to the pantry's installation, things of that nature. And even in speaking with other neighbors of mine, um, they've also articulated that they haven't noticed um, these sort of high rates of crime or violence or uh, things that cause them concern in the neighborhood. And speaking of years, this pantry has been in place. You've been operating it for quite some time now. That's correct. It went up in July of 2020. Is there any opportunity for you to relocate the pantry on your property so it's not on city property? Would that solve this issue? So it goes back to the whole um, initial request that we had made for the city to provide a land survey to show exactly where they they believe that their property ends and mine begins. Um, unfortunately, the city still has not provided a land survey. They've also indicated that they do not have anyone on staff who is qualified to conduct a land survey. So my concern is that if we move it back, I think they're saying it's about 10 feet from the sidewalk onto the middle of my um, my lawn. My concern is that uh, what if we move it and they say, no, 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 that's actually our property. Or what if we move it back? Who's going to maintain the little walkway that would have to, you know, sort of go across my lawn to the pantry? Because once again, they're saying that that's their property. However, we've been maintaining the property for the seven and a half years we've owned the house. Have you spoken to your city councillor or anyone else at the city about this? So unfortunately, I've not received any response from my city councillor. He's been CC'd on all of the emails since December. Um, I have not received a response from him or anyone else from the city. To be honest, the majority of the information that we've gleaned from the city has come from uh, the manager of bylaw and other individuals speaking to the media and it being reported in the media. Have you considered at all taking the infrastructure that you've created here to generate the donations that keep this pantry stocked and directing those donations or using your network to support a different local organization that provides hygiene products, et cetera, that's in your pantry? So a lot of the local organizations that do that sort of thing support our pantry and other pantries like it, um, particularly because it's low barrier. There's no hours of operation. There's no restrictions for people to come grab the items they need. It's incredibly low barrier, and it's in a very centralized location. Um, When we talk about things like, you know, the Cambridge Food Bank or Trinity Community Table, those organizations are fantastic, and they also have restrictions on them as well. So what are you going to do? You've basically got, what, six weeks or so to 
do something here. Otherwise, the city says it's coming in to remove the pantry at your expense. What are you going to do? Honestly, I don't know. I'm, I was really feeling optimistic that the city was willing to work with us and they were acting in good faith and that um, this would be settled in a respectful way where all parties would be happy. Um, I, I really don't know. We are seeking uh, legal advice um, on this. It's, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't want to incur a cost. I mean, the cost of living is so high right now. I can't imagine having a bill from the city to remove this, especially when, you know, we pay property taxes and all of that other stuff. After having this pantry in operation, Audrey, for more than three years now, how does all of this make you feel? I am exhausted. I, I really, and I think that's what the city is hoping for. You know, I don't have endless resources. I don't have a legal team behind me. I don't have a staff of people who can handle this um, the way the city does. And I, I, I think they're probably hoping that I'm burnt out and tired, which I absolutely am. It's, it's hard to keep up this fight on top of my normal life. You know, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I work full time, I have my own small business. I'm you know, trying to do all of these things and to deal with this as well. It's incredibly exhausting and overwhelming. And it's disheartening. I feel it's, you know, it doesn't make me feel good to leave a, to live in a world like this and leave this sort of world for my kids where, you know, this stuff happens. And this stuff, I mean, it sounds like you've been trying to do something, uh, you know, a good gesture, an act of kindness in your community and successfully for more than three years and now it feels like the city wants to take it away from you. That's right. I feel like we're being punished for um, trying to do something good. Audrey, I wish you luck in the uh, weeks ahead, and thank you very much for making time for the show today. Thank you so much for making time for me as well. I really appreciate it. Audrey Hill is the operator of the Jarvis Street Little Pantry. You'll remember the story from before Christmas when prompted by a complaint from the neighborhood, said he came by, took a closer look at the pantry, said this needs to be moved because it's on city property. And despite efforts in the intervening months to work with Audrey on her property, the latest letter received says it's got to be gone by March or we're going to make it gone for you at your expense. Clive sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. So the city could say we can assist you in moving the pantry and thank you for helping the community, or we can take it away. The cost to the city is the same, and one benefits the community. How do councils not ask the simple questions and direct staff to help people that want to make the community better? I think it's a fair question here. We can quibble about where the pantry is located and whether or not it's on public or private property. But the bottom line here is you've got somebody trying to do a good thing and the city is frankly making it very difficult for Audrey and her family to continue doing that good thing. And if you look at it that way, boy, oh boy, you can come up with all kinds of reasons and not very good ones as to why the city would want to prevent a pantry like this from continuing to operate. It doesn't put the city in a very good light. And then, on the other hand, you could say, you know what, just move this pantry onto your own private property and continue its operation from there. 
Three plus years it's been operating and it may now be down to its final weeks. What do you make of this story? And if you're Audrey, what would you do? 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. My concern is that what if we move it and they say, no, 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 that's actually our property? Or what if we move it back? Who's going to maintain the little walkway that would have to sort of go across my lawn to the pantry? Because once again, they're saying that that's their property. However, we've been maintaining the property for the seven and a half years we've owned the house. And for about three and a half of those years, that home on Jarvis Street in Cambridge has had one of those free little pantries out front. But it's become a real issue for the city of Cambridge. And now Audrey Hill is wondering, what do I do? How do I keep this pantry in operation? And it is definitely a dilemma. Let's go to the phones, find out if you have an answer. Richard, good morning. Hey, Mike, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. And you? I can't complain other than I think our city's now at this point where they're doing things on purpose because they don't know what to do anymore. So they just hit the pause button and go, let's see where all the dominoes lay. And it's getting frustrating for everyone involved. I think if there's anybody willing, at the day that they're ready to take down that thing at her cost, someone just chain themselves to that as a good old protest like tree huggers. (laughs) We've got to do something to set a lesson to these government people. They're not doing anything. They're, oh, we're looking at it, reviewing it, and just wasting tax dollars constantly. That's all we ever hear from them. This is under review. That's under review. Okay, well, where's your plan? None. And it's, it's, to me, it's like the definition of an insanity that we keep trying. They keep doing the same things over and over and over, and everything just keeps getting worse. Like, when are they going to wake up? Can we make it so politicians start working at minimum wage, freeze all their savings, freeze all their assets? You pay the exorbitant amounts of rent that we pay and see how well you guys do it. Yeah, Richard, I hear where you're coming from, and I certainly understand the frustration. And I think it echoes what clive said in his email earlier right you have somebody in your city that's doing a good thing unquestionably doing a good thing supporting some of our communities most vulnerable or marginalized in a low barrier basically barrier free way and the city is throwing up some bureaucratic roadblocks instead of putting up the roadblocks why don't we build the bridge to find a way to make this work jeffrey what do you think uh heartbroken listening to audrey there i don't uh yeah not good but uh if i'm not mistaken i'm going to keep it really short and sweet here i'm not mistaken uh trudel was in kitchener waterloo there friday donating more money to some other cause i highly doubt he made any any sort of effort or or drive-by to Tent City. But I'm sure in the next hour or so when you bring that up, there's a bunch of issues with Tent City as well that can be fixed. Next time, man, you get the opportunity, please, if, if possible. Peter Sweeney and Barry Verbanovic are part of the huge problem here in the town, and they need to answer to this. Those two fellows need to answer to it. Hardcore. What answer to what specifically, Jeffrey? Well, he's the mayor of Kitchener, Barry Verbanovic, and he's got a lot of a lot to say all the time, except for issues like this. Or he's got he's got stuff to say about it, but no solution. And Peter Sweeney, I know he's only one man, but I'm pretty sure he's director of housing. And I thought I thought when I was homeless, Mike, that I was that it was my fault. And you know what? It probably fifty or sixty percent of it was. Now I never forget about the other forty or fifty percent. 
All right, Jeffrey, appreciate the call. Uh, Peter Sweeney is our region's commissioner of community services. And I understand that, and you know what? Mayor Verbanovic is going to be on with us in less than an hour to talk about some land that the region purchased on Victoria Street between King and Weber. In fact, it's land that is directly adjacent to that encampment at Weber and Victoria. It's all part of the transit hub that the city or the region intends to create. But it does lead to the question, well, what's next then for that encampment? So we can we can talk to Mayor Verbanovic about that for sure in the next hour. You're listening to the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Well, as mentioned, Kitchener Mayor and Regional Councillor Barry Verbanovic will join us in the next hour in and around 1045 to talk about this land that the region agreed yesterday at its meeting to purchase, which is the final piece of the transit hub puzzle, if you will, on Victoria Street between King and Weber. So there are further implications here and we'll get the chance to have that chat. That's just one of several conversations in the next hour during a very busy hour of programming. All of it looking at things right here in the region. Another one of our conversations in the next 60 minutes around the more than 9,000 children who are waiting for childcare in this region and what we're doing to try and create more childcare spaces. Also, as you heard during All News Mornings today with Christine Clark and Mark Douglas, Funding for a better tent city that's been provided by the region may have been provided without first finding out if a better tent city met the criteria for that funding basket in the region. So what do we do with that moving forward? We'll take a closer look at that. And right after this update from the City News Center, why our region cannot succeed without a financially healthy University of Waterloo. The school's president joins us next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 5-7. As was reported some months back, the University of Waterloo is staring down a $15 million budget deficit and projections suggest that deficit could balloon in the years ahead. Add to that now a recent announcement about a cap on international students and the situation may be even more troubling for the University of Waterloo. And further to all of that, what does a financially unstable or unhealthy University of Waterloo mean to this community as a whole? Because many will argue, myself included, that the university plays a critical role in the local economy. Vivek Goel is the president at the University of Waterloo, joins us on the show for a conversation. Good morning, Vivek. Vivek, are you with us? Good morning, Mike. Good, Good morning. With you. Good to have you. Thank you very much, sir, for making the time. Uh, let's start with the financial situation as it stands today. How How dire would you describe the financial situation currently at the University of Waterloo? So, as you noted in the introduction, uh, we've already been projecting uh, a deficit for the year that we're in, and absent any other changes 
And before the federal government's announcement of two weeks ago, we were forecasting that our deficit would continue to grow. Um, this is a deficit on our operating budget, you know, the money that we get in every year um, in terms of grants from the province uh, to support domestic students and tuition from our domestic and international students. That accounts for about 90% of our budget. Um, that pays for the education that we provide. And so that's our operating budget. Uh, that has, the gap has been increasing in terms of expenses growing faster than our revenues for many, many years in, because our provincial grant has been frozen. Uh, back in 2018, the tuition was cut by 10% and then it was also frozen. And so you can't have an environment where inflation is running 3 and 4% as it has been. And so costs are increasing, but our revenues are constrained without starting to feel some pain. Um, it doesn't mean that we're going under or we're in the same kind of situation that Laurentian found itself in. Uh, what we have been doing, and it's not necessarily the best thing, is we've been covering that gap in uh, revenue and expense from deferring certain types of uh, expenses, uh, primarily in areas like capital improvements, dealing with uh, maintenance on our 50- and 60-year-old infrastructure, investing in new IT systems, and so on. So you can't do that forever. Uh, it's like if you are not fixing your roof on your house in order to pay your mortgage, eventually your house is not livable. And, and so we've been not spending on certain things that we should be spending on in order to close that gap. So we've reached this situation where our circumstances are starting to get to the point we can't continue to do what we've been doing. And then layered on top of all of that was this recent announcement from the federal government, which at its core is a goal that we support, and that is curbing the very rapid expansion of international students into programs and institutions where they were not getting adequate support in the form of housing and other services, and quite honestly, even in terms of the kind of educational programs being delivered. And that was primarily in Ontario through uh, private colleges and curriculum licensing arrangements. Unfortunately, what the federal government has done is applied a blanket uh, reduction in the study permits that were going to be issued. Um, the province has to now allocate its share amongst the different categories of institutions, and there's a great deal of uncertainty about how that's going to be done. And so it's created significant turmoil because this is all happening as the current admission cycle for the fall intake is underway. And so for those students or prospective students who are looking to come to the University of Waterloo or to other Canadian universities, there's a great deal of uncertainty about what's going to happen. And those students, particularly the very best students, the kinds that we are looking at at the University of Waterloo, have lots of other options in other jurisdictions where this uncertainty doesn't exist. And so our fear is that our international enrollments will be impacted this fall, and that will add further to our budget pressures. How does the University of Waterloo ensure 
the success of international students from their academic careers to their housing and even workplace environments? So, first of all, in terms of selecting our international students, um, you know, we have the same criteria uh, for admission for international and and domestic students. So we're not um, we're taking students that are adequately qualified uh, for success in our programs. We're supporting them. Um, obviously, we continue to provide our housing guarantee for all incoming undergraduate students, domestic and international, so they don't have to worry about housing in their first year. Uh, they are supported through um, services on language, on cultural adaptation, mental health services. Um, we're just finishing work on uh, creating a new um, center to bring together all our services for international students and international experiences for our students. Uh, and we're hoping to open that uh, later this year. So we have a number of uh, programs and services that support our international students to help ensure that they are successful in their time here. Can you share with us the economic spin-offs, for lack of a better term, that the region enjoys because of the work the University of Waterloo is doing? Sure. And, you know, first, uh, the university, as an employer, as a large landholder in, in the community, contributes directly to the regional economy, and that's upwards of a billion dollars a year through its operational impact. Um, you know, our co-op students are being employed uh, by local firms, and they're contributing to their uh, success. That's tens of thousands of students uh, a year. And uh, we have our entrepreneurial ecosystem, which I think has been a key linchpin of the development and growth of uh, the Waterloo region as a global leader in entrepreneurship and particularly in technology uh, entrepreneurship. And, you know, I'll note that we have many of our most successful uh, companies in the region, like FAIR and AvidBots, were founded by individuals that came to the University of Waterloo as international students. How concerned are you? I mean, something needs to change financially, or what? Where's your level of concern here? So, absolutely. So, you know, we either have change on the revenue side. And, you know, I I would just go back to before the international student issue, we were focused already on our uh, overall funding from the province. The Ontario government had commissioned last year what it called a blue ribbon panel to review the financial sustainability of the post-secondary sector. That panel had a series of recommendations around how the provincial grants are funded, tuition, as well as opportunities for efficiencies. We certainly accept uh, that last area, but we also call on the province to act on the recommendations of its own panel and ensure that we're adequately supported. Um, If we don't have that kind of support on the revenue side, we will have to continue to look at cost containment measures and in the long run, that's going to have an impact on the quality of programs and the services that we're able to provide to our students. And so that will eventually start to have an impact 
on the broader local economy if we're not able to do the kinds of things that we've historically done. It is an important conversation, to be sure. Uh, Vivek, really appreciate you making time for the show today. Thank you, sir, for being here. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. Vivek Goel is the president of the University of Waterloo. The chair of the university's board, Murray Gamble, wrote an op-ed for yesterday's Waterloo Region record uh, saying that our region cannot succeed without a financially healthy University of Waterloo. And if you take just a moment to think about the economic impact that UW has had over the decades, it's a hard opinion to argue with. We'll take a break, come back with more on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. As you heard today during All News Mornings with Christine Clark and Mark Douglas, a motion brought forward at a committee of regional council yesterday around a better tent city ultimately voted down and then deferred. I guess deferred would be the more accurate way to put it. But what was it all about around a better tent city and how it operates and how it's funded from our regional government? Michael Harris is a regional councillor who represents Kitchener. It was his motion that uh, came forward yesterday at the committee meeting. Uh, Michael, thanks for making time for the show. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. What was the intention of your motion? Sure. Well, I mean, we never actually got to a vote, so it was deferred, and we will address that in here, I guess, in a week and a half. But uh, uh, so, Mike, basically, the region is implementing its interim housing plan uh, while obviously developing a plan to end chronic homelessness. So we know that that is, uh, you know, a significant, if not the most important issue here in our community. Um, you know, uh, we've used that unprecedented commitment using all of the community approach to ending chronic homelessness here in the region, and we've went a step further and we've sunk uh, an additional $10.2 million uh, to address, prevent, and end chronic homelessness. Uh, of course, while the plan to end chronic homelessness is finalized, and we'll be hearing that in, in, in April uh, uh, shortly. So um, <clears throat> there was uh, an additional grant, and so I guess I'll back up. Uh, a Better Tent City, uh, you know, applied uh, through... Um, a, uh, you know, community first, uh, housing principle regions fee for service call. So it was a, a bucket of money, uh, available for, you know, providers to, to access. They applied for this first round of funding and, uh, they didn't meet the criteria, uh, set out by the region, um, for proposals to provide community outreach and support services. So what they did is they, they came directly to council then at budget time, um, and asked for funding for uh, their organization, even though they, they did not meet that, that criteria for the, for the fund initially. Council then approved a grant of $236,390. Um, and, uh, you know, basically my motion, and it, 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 I felt it was more of a housekeeping one. I'm chair of finance, so I can't uh, technically, you know, uh, include those come budget time. Uh, I asked uh, that... Um, regional staff be directed to collect outcomes, data, and metrics from a better tent city that align with existing homelessness outreach agreements and providers, uh, and that such are agreed to with a better tent city. So I felt, you know, we, we fund all these groups uh, through a normal process that they would apply to, and they're accountable to taxpayers and to staff to help us evaluate future proposals and funding commitments that they too should also be uh, required uh, for 
us to collect that information. And that, that's really the, the, the crux of, of what I asked for here. I in no way want to change the funding commitment that the council made at budget time to the organization, but felt, uh, you know, that those um, accountabilities that exist for similar outreach services funded by the region also apply uh, to a better tent city because they did somewhat circumvent the process by coming direct to council. So should that money, that 260000 grant for a better tent city, Michael, come from that $10.2 million in future plan to end chronic homelessness? Like, did it come from the wrong basket here? No, it's it's coming from regional coffers. Like it's it's just going to be funded, um, and I, I'm not entirely sure if it's out of that 10.2 or not. Um, I suspect it, it will be a part of its 236k. Um, at the end of the day, again, I was just simply, you know, it's it's regional taxpayers' money. Um, you know, they didn't meet that criteria. I think that's the big one first. They didn't meet the criteria. They were declined uh, that request. Then they came to council. They were eventually awarded that uh, money, uh, which is great. Um, but they should also have to adhere to the same rules and requirements of other, uh, you know, organizations that receive uh, money from the region and provide us with that data so that we can measure those outcomes, uh, you know, and, and hold groups accountable for uh, the money that they receive from regional taxpayers. That, that's all we're really asking for here. So. I remember when this came up around council and the first time that the funding was denied. And I wonder then, did public pressure lead council, do you believe, to awarding that 236000 yeah, look, I mean, uh, I'll be very frank. I'm not a fan of, you know, and I'll tell you, our staff, and I've had a chance to work at the region now as a regional council for, what, six years, Mike? We have the utmost professional staff. I can't speak highly enough about them they're just phenomenal and i trust when they review or when there's a call for funding uh such as you know housing first principles and homelessness supports that they're reviewing these applications in the most professional way and so i i i took uh, you know their advice obviously um you know or I, I value their advice here unfortunately this particular group didn't meet that criteria uh and and some groups know that if they don't like the answer they get on one hand, they can come direct to council, and I'll tell you, I mean, I spent time at Queen's Park. We didn't have that direct engagement with people like we do at the region, and when they come to the regional floor and they lobby, blah, 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 you know, they're, they're apt to, to probably get funding. Yesterday, we made a decision to reverse a budget decision that we just made in December for, you know, cultural groups. So, you know, I, I just feel when we pass a budget, um, you know, it, it should stick. Uh, that's not the way this particular council's worked, and so that's how it works, though, Mike. I mean, again, I, 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 I'm not, uh, you know, contesting the, the money that they received. I'm just saying that they should also be subject to the same terms they would had they received the funding through the normal channels in the first place to ensure that we're collecting that data, measuring those outcomes uh, on behalf of taxpayers' money. That's all it is. Do you support the work that a better tent city is doing in the community? You know, look, they are providing, you know, uh, interim housing uh, to folks, uh, you know, here in our community. We know there are, you know, dozens of, uh, you know, unsanctioned encampments across the city. Uh, there's no doubt they're doing important work. Obviously, the region has invested in its own interim housing plan. Uh, I love to see, you know, more of that where we're, 
you know, doing the best to get people that are living, living rough into something like the, what the region offers, uh, uh, for potentially to work with them to get them into something more stable long term. Uh, that's, that's where I, that's what I support. Um, whereas obviously the better tent city model is somewhat different where it's, you know, 50 folks that are going to continue to live there for some time. Um, I love our planet, the region where we've got, uh, our best foot forward to get them into something temporarily and get them out of that into something more long-term manageable uh, with the supports that they require. So, you know, everyone does the important work. They're going to receive that funding, but they should also be subject to the same rules that other funding partners have already at the region. Where do we go now that this has been deferred? Well, I mean, technically anything at the committee automatically gets deferred to council anyway. So it's not, you know, we were going to have to, to deal with it in two weeks, you know, it's ratified. Anything at committees ratified at council, so we'll have a vote on it. I mean, I, I'm going to, you know, uh, encourage a better tent city to come to council, um, you know, to to uh, answer questions that council may have on this. I encourage them, you know, to to agree, uh, you know, to my call to provide staff with the data that they would, uh, you know, want to have to measure outcomes. Um, and any other information that staff may require, uh, you know, to, to help us make future decisions on funding, uh, you know, allotments to this organization, uh, that's all I'm asking. So I hope that they come, they speak to that, and ultimately they agree uh, to working with our professional staff uh, to get them that information, because uh, ultimately this is about building the best plan uh, to end chronic homelessness uh, here in our community. Michael, I appreciate you making time for the show today. Thanks for being here. Okay, Mike. Thanks for your time. Michael Harris, a regional councillor representing Kitchener, giving us a little bit more of the story behind the story that you heard during All News Mornings today on City News 570. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Regional Council approved yesterday a bid to purchase property on Victoria Street. It now owns virtually everything from Victoria and King to Victoria and Weber. Why? We'll talk about that before 11 and right after this update from the City News Centre. How many children are waiting for childcare in Waterloo Region and what's our plan to address it? That's coming up following this update from the City News Centre on the Mike Farwell Show. City News 570 and Rogers TV. A report to the region's Community and Health Services Committee yesterday looked at increasing space opportunities for community-based nonprofit childcare growth in our region. Barbara Cardo is the Director of Children's Services with the Region of Waterloo, joins us for a conversation. Good morning, Barb. Good morning, Mike. How many spaces are we currently short here in the region? Well, um... We we actually don't know. Um, we don't know exactly what the demand is for children um, zero to four because um, we have because since um, the 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 uh, fees have gone down in in price for parents, the demand has actually increased significantly. Um, economists used to say that they thought the demand would be sit at about. Forty percent of children zero to four need childcare, um, but that was based on 
much higher child care fees, which kept many parents away. Now that child care fees are down um, by 52% from what they were in 2022, um, I expect that the demand is much higher than 40%. And based on that, I guess we have to get creative when it comes to ways of finding these new potential spaces. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, as we've been, you know, if I could just start by saying, you know, our community and our nonprofit operators are very interested in growth and in supporting growth across Waterloo Region and, in fact, really excited about being able to offer childcare that has been in frankly, um, in significant demand since the 1960s. Um, and it's, we're finally at a place where we have investment that we can actually grow in a meaningful way. Um, we will be growing over the next, well, from 2022 to 2026, we will grow by 3,725 new spaces. Um, one of the challenges, though, as you were alluding to, is that... Um, we, it's very difficult to find land or buildings or space that is affordable and appropriate for childcare use. So that is what this report that you're referring to is all about. So what kinds of solutions are you looking for? Who might be a viable partner in this regard? Well, first we're starting, you know, right at um, home here at the region with where we council has approved for us to explore where feasible and appropriate um, developing spaces for childcare in regionally owned land buildings and surplus lands in Waterloo Region housing developments and any other emerging opportunities. We'll also look at and work together with our municipal partners. Um, to, to determine if there are spaces available there. And in fact, I'm really happy to say Woolwich Township has already identified a, an opportunity there and is looking at other opportunities for growth in their area. So we're looking to the other municipalities as well. Uh, we're talking with school boards, um, looking to speak with universities, colleges, hospitals, and any other community partners or businesses um, so that we can explore affordable space um, in underutilized buildings or land. How do we fund this, Barb, so that we are mm-hmm. meeting our commitment under the Canada-wide Early Learning and Child Care Program? So the funding, um, well, it comes um, originally from the federal government through the Canada-wide Early Learning and Child Care Program, and that's um, more commonly known as $10 per day child care. And that program was designed to reduce parent fees so parents could aff- actually afford child care, increase spaces, um, address the workforce crisis that we find ourselves in, and make the system more accessible and equitable for all children, um, including children who have historically experienced barriers. So, so there's a, so that funding, there was an agreement made between the federal government and the provincial government. And then the provincial government has, is, um, sending the money over to the municipalities who are carrying out, um, for leading and implementing the plan. One of the challenges though is, um, there is not a lot. Um, there is some capital funding to support um, 
startup funds, but there is not a lot of funding to support um, the actual construction of spaces. And so that's where we're needing to be creative. We do have some funding we can contribute as part of the, the funding we receive, but we are looking to our um, communities and nonprofit uh, providers for helping to support some of those capital costs. But it's a challenge. Are you confident, Barb, that we can create the spaces we need to create to meet the demand, the wait list, the growing population? I am very confident. Um, I am an optimist. Um, (laughs) We can't do it overnight. Um, It will take time. There are lots of issues. You know, we really haven't been a system. We've been, you know, a mosaic of independent operators. um, And that doesn't allow us to plan as a system for where we actually need childcare the most. This is opening up that opportunity for us to plan to put childcare where it's most needed. Waterloo Region is really well known for its, you know, um, collaborative approaches across our childcare operators, and they are really interested in supporting this and making this happen together with us. It will take a lot of grit a lot of um, problem solving, a lot of creative planning and, and a commitment from the whole community, not just her childcare community, to really make this happen so that all families who need childcare have access to it um, across Waterloo Region. And frankly, that's what's best for children, that's what's best for families, and that's what's going to help our economy to continue to, to move forward because without childcare, um, we know uh, parents really struggle. Barb, I really appreciate you making time on the show this morning. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Barb Cardo is the Director of Children's Services with the Region of Waterloo, uh, joining us this morning to talk about that report looking at increasing space opportunities for community-based, non-profit child care growth. This is all, of course, under the Canada-wide Early Learning and Child Care Program, or $10 per day child care trying to get a handle on how many people are on a wait list right now and how we meet the demand for future growth as well. The work is underway. It's not going to happen overnight, but Barb remains confident we can achieve those necessary targets. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, why did the region of Waterloo purchase a parcel of land on Victoria Street North? We'll tell you that coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Our regional government was busy yesterday. We've talked about funding for a better tent city, plans to ensure adequate spaces for childcare in this community moving forward. And now let's talk about the purchase of a parcel of land on Victoria Street North. The regional Council voting yesterday to make the purchase of the property at the corner of King or pardon me, uh, Victoria and Duke on Victoria Street North. Barry Verbanovic is a regional councillor and also, of course, the mayor of Kitchener joins us to talk about it. Mayor Verbanovic, good morning, sir. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you very much. How are you? I am awesome. You know what? It's been a great week. I think, you know, you go around the city and everyone is just in a better mood with a little bit of sunshine this week. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, okay, I mentioned this piece of property at the corner of Victoria and Duke. It's where a small strip plaza is right now. The region agreed yesterday to move forward with a near $20 million purchase of that parcel of land. Why? What's it for? 
Yeah, you know what? Uh, so, Mike, uh, as you know, the region's been consolidating um, the, the land in that stretch of uh, Victoria Street uh, for some time now in terms of the Kitchener Central Station um, and the development that would go along with that. This is really the, the missing tooth in the stretch of Victoria between uh, King and Weber. The region uh, owns all the other land. And um, when there was an opportunity presented to, uh, to acquire it, it really makes sense because it allows... Um, the region to look at this whole stretch um, as a major transit station area and, um, you know, redevelop it along with the uh, the central station uh, and, uh, you know, the, the other amenities that will go with it in the fullness of time um, in order to, uh, to re- really capitalize on uh, the, the interest that exists in, in the community and in the innovation district in downtown Kitchener. What becomes of the businesses that are currently operating there? So obviously that's something that uh, the region will be, you know, working on uh, with them. Um, you know, first of all, I think it's important to note that the, the transaction will, uh, as I understand it, close later this month. Um, regional staff will be reaching out to the uh, uh, to the various businesses that are there. Um, there is, um, you know, obviously, you know, the city and our economic development department will support the region and those businesses. Um, in relocating when the time comes. But there also is no imminence on this. Like, this is not something um, that is going to happen t- tomorrow. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the, the initial priority is focused around the, the, the central station, and the region continues to work with Metrolinx um, towards uh, getting that, uh, that project going um, in, the, uh, in the coming period. Along those same lines, Mayor Verbanovic, that nothing here is imminent, but this is sort of that final piece of the the central transit hub, uh, central station corridor from Victoria and King to Victoria and Weber. This parcel of land, this plaza, is directly next to that still rather large encampment. What's going to become of that how do we square that circle as you need this property obviously ultimately for the central station uh, for sure so you know to be clear the central station is is uh has been planned for some time to be in the area of uh, of, of king and victoria and uh, you know the the rest of the development is part of the uh the overall uh a transit-oriented development that uh, Metrolinx and you know the province and, and the region uh, and the city have been talking about in terms of major transit station areas like that. Um, you know, obviously the the region is continuing to work with community partners um, in terms of the uh, the residents who are uh, still located at that uh, at that location. Um, you know, as as you know, there was a, a court decision that the region had to uh, abide by and uh, continues to work with those partners as well as, um, you know, advocating with uh, other orders of government, uh, including the province and the feds, uh, for, for additional funding. I mean, one of the, one of the things that uh, all municipalities are, are talking about is the need for a new fiscal arrangement um, with uh, cities, provinces, and territories in the federal government to deal with the 21st century challenges that cities are dealing with. Um, in something other than the 19th century legal framework um, that continues to be in place. Now that we have this final piece of the property puzzle in place, do we have any idea, are there any timelines as to when we might start seeing something tangible in the way of movement on the central station itself? Yeah, so I I do know that uh, our staff at the region are continuing to dialogue um, with with Metrolinx uh, on the, the timing of that project. As you can appreciate, um, 
it's it's a complex project. I mean, it, you know, on the surface, it seems simple: build a building on an empty piece of land. Uh, but that that project needs to be carefully integrated uh, with the rail service that uh, will adjoin it, um, at a, and it needs to be done in a way that allows rail service to continue during the construction period. And so, there's a lot of things that need to be balanced, not only with um, MetroLink and, and, and Go Transit, but as you know, that's also a major trade corridor for rail. And so that needs to, you know, that needs to be balanced with CN and other partners as well. And so that's uh, that's the work that's being done. And um, you know, as soon as uh, there are some definitive timelines uh, from MetroLink and and uh, and the region, uh, obviously they'll be shared with the community, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see uh, some uh, some work commencing, which I, I know we're all excited about. Um, you know, I, I think the important thing to remember here is, you know, this this acquisition really. Um, emphasizes the importance that this stretch uh, will play uh, in terms of both the city and the overall region and welcoming uh, you know people from from Toronto and all and, and, and west of us as well uh, to our community um, allowing people within our community to uh, to connect uh, with uh, the rest of the province and the rest of the world and uh, and ultimately uh, making sure that we continue to be the economic engine. Um, that uh, that this area has been both for Ontario and Canada. Mayor Verbanovic, we appreciate your time on the show this morning. Thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Barry Verbanovic is the mayor of the city of Kitchener. Of course, by virtue of being a mayor, he also sits on regional council. And I got to say, I mean, when Mayor Verbanovic talks about sort of the anticipation and excitement that comes with the completion of these purchases of property along Victoria Street. I mean, if you just think about it for a moment, and you may recall the renderings of the central station itself, but even if you if you don't, just think about, you know, a central transit hub at King and Victoria. Yeah, King and Victoria, pardon me. And then going down Victoria, the Rumpelfeld building, right? Now this plaza, that corner where an encampment still resides, but that whole stretch being filled up with transit-related development, the central station, the Via station is right there across Weber at Victoria. Like, you can get pretty excited about it, and boy, oh boy, you want to talk about a big city. This is definitely becoming another part of that big city feel. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, I promised you a busy show for busy people today. Remember, when you say that, you have to snap your fingers and extend your arms out in either direction to your side. My former boss used to say that. Busy show for busy people, Farwell. And what an hour we just had here covering all things local from the financial stability of the University of Waterloo to a purchase of property on Victoria Street that will be part eventually of our central station at King and Victoria and more transit-related development along that stretch of Victoria from King to Weber. It's time now to get you an update from the City News Centre and then... We meet Canada's own Indiana Jones. That story coming up on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. If you have listened to this show for more than a minute, you know that I have long held a fascination with people who are willing to go the distance, quite literally. Maybe they'll take on some challenging adventure or trek, walking, hiking, the Bruce Trail, 
for example? How about cycling clear across the country? Things like that. And then going on these expeditions that excite me, that completely captivate my imagination, but also make me realize that better for them than me. I will just enjoy vicariously through their exploits because I don't think I'd last one night out in the wild on my own. Adam Schultz is a Canadian explorer and author. He will be presenting at the Guelph Arboretum Centre tomorrow evening his fifth book, Where the Falcon Flies. And Adam makes time for our program this morning. Adam, good morning. Good morning. What was the inspiration for Where the Falcon Flies? Well, it was literally a falcon flying. I was uh, in my living room in St. Williams in Norfolk County, right near Lake Erie. I looked out the living room window. I saw a peregrine falcon. When I saw that falcon, it reminded me of a falcon I'd seen a few years before in the Arctic, and I thought, ah, wow, isn't that a beautiful reminder of the ties that bind Canada's landscape from south to north? That falcon is flying from southern Ontario, thousands of kilometers north to the Arctic. Why not get my backpack and my canoe and follow it from my front door to the Arctic? So that was the inspiration. (laughs) You know, I, I have to ask, you remind me of one of my best friends, Adam, who has traveled extensively, and it seems that in virtually every conversation, he'll have a, a memory of when I was in, and then you can insert place name here. And I know he, he doesn't do it to be uh, braggadocious in any way. It's just because he's been to so many places. And I couldn't help but notice that when you mentioned that peregrine falcon, you thought, oh, it's the same as one I've seen a couple of years ago in the Arctic. Does it dawn on you, like the, the, the experiences that you've had in life? Well, I mostly confine my traveling just to Canada. So, and I've always been like that ever since I was in school. Like if I had a chance on reading week to go somewhere, I never, it never crossed my mind to go to like a beach in the Caribbean. I'd be like, I'm going up north into the woods, into the wilderness. I was always fascinated with Canada and our wild places. So every chance I've got, I've tried to be in the woods in a tent or in my canoe or on snowshoes just exploring Canada. And the thing I always told myself is, you know, Canada is so vast. Even if I lived 10 lifetimes, I'd never even come close to seeing all the places just in Canada that I want to. So to answer your question, I mean, certainly I think I've seen more of Canada than pretty much almost anyone alive today. But (laughs) outside of Canada, I mean, it's a big world. And almost any random person has probably seen more of it than I have uh, beyond Canada. But yeah, it was a few years Previous, I'd done a 4,000-kilometer journey alone across the Arctic, uh, which had taken me four months to canoe from the Yukon to Hudson's Bay, and that is when I'd seen the falcons. And when you're alone for months, I mean, you have lots of time just to yourself to watch birds and to watch uh, wildlife and nature all around you. So seeing those falcons from my canoe in the Arctic, it had made a huge impression on me, and the memory had stayed fresh and vivid in my mind ever afterwards. So when I saw those same falcons, I mean, not literally the exact same bird, but the same species in southern Ontario from my from my window, my living room window. Um, that's kind of why it had such a big impact on me. And I thought, you know, wouldn't this be a unique chance to actually see the country from a totally different perspective, canoeing to the Arctic from the south, passing through major urban areas, canoeing in Toronto, camping in Montreal, working my way north, watching the landscape transform, the trees going from, you know, deciduous trees like shagbark hickory and cucumber magnolia into balsam fir and black spruce, and finally all the way up to, like, the windswept Arctic tundra with polar bears and beluga whales. So that's kind of everything I thought of and what drove me to do it. 
how do you prepare yourself for an adventure like that and the encounters you're going to have along the way? Well, my whole life kind of revolves around doing stuff in the wilderness adventure-wise, so I always kind of joke that my backpack is always packed and ready to go on an adventure. I've got my Swiss Army knife, my freeze-dried meals, my granola bars. My I use two pairs of clothes. That's about what I wear in civilization anyway, so I have my two pairs of clothes packed up so that if some idea takes my fancy, I can be ready to leave at the drop of a hat. And uh, every chance I get, I mean, I'll go for a hike in the woods every day of my life. That's kind of like one of my central goals is that make sure every day, no matter what, I get a chance to be out in the woods. And sometimes if I can't go any farther, I'll just go for two days and and camp out uh, wherever I can. So I always say that kind of keeps my skills sharp. Some days, if it's just like an ordinary Wednesday, I'll be like, okay, once I'm done with uh, this interview on the radio, I'm going to go cook lunch in the woods here just to keep my skills sharp, see if I can get a fire going without matches. And I think doing all those things and uh, just making it almost like a lifestyle um, gets me ready to go on these you know, big journeys. What is the most frightening experience you've had on your journeys to date? Uh, well, on where the falcon flies, when I went from Lake Erie to the Arctic, there was a whole range of them from wilderness dangers involving whitewater rapids and huge storms, tornadoes, gale force winds, you know, polar bears, all those sorts of things, but also urban hazards, just traveling through uh, the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Seaway, paddling my canoe on the Great Lakes. I mean, there were a lot of storms, but those storms were made worse for a canoeist uh, from from actually human objects, such as break walls, which you don't usually have to worry about when you're in the wilderness. So if you have like a concrete wall along the shore for over a kilometer, then there's nowhere to actually land your canoe. And you just got to kind of get through it and battle all the white caps and the waves until you get somewhere where you can actually land. Uh, there were hydroelectric dams. There was oh, commercial shipping. That's a big concern on the St. Lawrence River when I would be paddling through Montreal or past a commercial port. You know, the port of Montreal is really busy. There would be like a dozen of those big giant steel sh- uh, ships, like picture the Edmund Fitzgerald, a dozen of those coming and docking at any one time. And they just sort of assume no one's dumb enough to paddle a canoe through a commercial shipping lane. But to get to the Arctic, I had no choice. So trying to navigate all that commercial traffic, you know, ferries and uh, other boats, tugboats going around. Um, that was a little bit of a challenge and potentially dangerous. They have big blind spots. So when you're down in the water in a small boat, they can't see you. And they move surprisingly fast, those big ships. If they run you over in a canoe, they wouldn't even notice. It'd be like running over a leaf. Um, you're so small compared to them. So that that and everything else, um, whitewater rapids, bears, as I mentioned, uh, lightning storms, those are all challenges that come uh, with the territory. Canadian Geographic has described you as one of our greatest living explorers. Others have described you as Canada's own Indiana Jones. How do you feel about those handles? I don't really worry about too much about that. I'm just doing what I love. And uh, if other people enjoy um, reading my books or, or my uh, stories, that's uh, all uh, uh, all all great, but uh, if not, it wouldn't really change anything that I'm doing. Um, so yeah, that's I'm just doing what I love, essentially. I feel as though, Adam, it's like asking a parent about a favorite child, but I'm going to boldly ask anyway. When you talked about having seen probably more of Canada than many other, if not any other person, and I, I love this country dearly, uh, what would be your favorite? Is there a place that stands out to you as the most beautiful you've seen in this country? Definitely Kitchener. 
Well played, sir. Well played. No, I mean, in all honesty, uh, all kidding aside, the one thing that I think is extraordinary about Canada and something that I learned from my journey is that no matter where you go, from Victoria to St. John's to Kitchener and everywhere in between, um, if you look with open eyes, you're sure to find something to fall in love with. I mean, you have the Grand River right there in Kitchener. I canoed the Grand River once in 2008 on a whim. I thought, why not just canoe the whole Grand River? Those will be a different experience than any northern river I've ever tackled. And I found that, you know, all along it, there are all sorts of wonderful little spots and gems uh, hidden along it. And that's something that I saw on this journey. I spent two nights camping within the city limits of Toronto, which is not something I ever thought I would do in my life. Um, But I was amazed. I was astonished at how much green space still exists, even in Toronto to this day. I spent one night camping on the Toronto Islands, which is a little archipelago of 13 islands. And it's only a kilometer from the downtown, all the hustle and bustle, concrete, asphalt, noise, millions of people. But in April, because I started my journey early in the year, but when I was there in April, I camped on one of the uninhabited islands that has um, no passenger ferries going to it or anything. It was just dense forest. I mean, it felt like I could have been Robinson Crusoe on the far side of the world. And same with along the Scarborough Lakeshore. I was amazed at the high bluffs and the rich Carolinian forest that exists there, all the wildlife. Um, so that was an eye-opener for me, just to realize, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say that there's a, a best spot or my favorite spot in Canada, because I think you can find um, exciting things just about anywhere. Uh, so it would be really hard for me to put my finger down and say just one place. As I mentioned, Where the Falcon Flies, your fifth book that you're presenting tomorrow evening at the Arboretum in Guelph. Uh, and, and you're still a, a man of not yet 40. So surely, Adam, you have more adventures planned. This can't be the last of your adventures. Well, I hope so. I'm 37 for the record. Um, and yes, I mean, I'm always dreaming up, dreaming up new adventures, new expeditions. I plan to go back to the Arctic um, this year and, and do some more exploring, more adventures there. And uh, there are many other ones that I'm doing all over the place, but there are others that just kind of arise spontaneously that I never really imagined doing. And then I see something like a falcon and it puts the idea in my head. So to answer your question, definitely, yes, I intend to do many more adventures. I look forward to following along. It's going to be great to have you here in our area in Guelph tomorrow night. And, and thanks so much for making time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Adam Schultz is a Canadian explorer and author. His latest book is called Where the Falcon Flies. He'll be presenting it at the Guelph Arboretum Centre tomorrow from 7.30 until 9. So if you're so inclined, if that sort of thing interests you as much as it interests me, by all means, check it out. And just when Adam was talking about what you can find, the beauty that you can find virtually anywhere, I was reminded of getting home from work yesterday and my beloved sharing with me that her and her co-workers had decided to take a little walk over their lunch break yesterday. And she told me about this park and this, was there like a, a little lake out there, a little water, body of water? Anyway, a park for sure out in the Northfield and Davenport area that I had no idea existed. But these are the sorts of things that you find when you're out experiencing your community on foot. And of course, it's not just on foot for Adam Schultz, but it's by canoe, urban camping, etc. His latest book, Where the Falcon Flies, presented by Adam himself at the Guelph uh, Arboretum Center, pardon me, from 7.30 until 9 tomorrow night. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV.
One thing that I think is extraordinary about Canada and something that I learned from my journey is that no matter where you go, from Victoria to St. John's to Kitchener and everywhere in between, if you look with open eyes, you're sure to find something to fall in love with. It's very difficult to say that there's a best spot or my favorite spot in Canada because I think you can find exciting things just about anywhere. Adam Schultz is a Canadian explorer and author. His fifth book entitled Where the Falcon Flies will be presented by Adam himself tomorrow evening from 7.30 until 9 at the Guelph Arboretum Center. A book talk, you say, might fall under the description of an arts or culture type event in one's community, something that you know I'm pretty passionate about. I think a community without a vibrant arts scene is a pretty bleak community indeed. We had a conversation on the show earlier this week uh, about that very thing and how advocates are saying, and there's a campaign underway to make our municipal leaders aware that arts are underfunded and they should be supported for a variety of reasons, not just the reason I shared, because I do think a community is a pretty bleak and boring place without funding or without the arts scene. And following that conversation earlier this week, I did receive this email from Frank to Mike at 570news.com. I got to say, this talk about defunding the arts is the biggest load of BS I've ever heard. The fact that these people can't consider that budgets are affected by economic hardships all the time just absolutely floors me. Just because you have a small amount taken away right now doesn't mean it won't go back up later. In fact... Granted money should not even be relevant in your operating budget, something the people running the museum need to learn. I applaud the councillors for being fiscal. If everyone got what they wanted, this region would be bankrupt in no time. I think I can go without another terrible, welded, orange-painted metal sculpture. Uh, The Asporia, that's what we call that? I'm pretty sure I've got the name right. The Aporia, I think it's the Aporia on Frederick Street. I used to call it the large intestine, whatever. I hear you, Frank. I understand that. But I think you're missing the forest for the trees here. And look, I understand the argument too. When it comes to an arts organization, by all means, let them create the kind of programming that brings enough people in through the doors or puts enough bums in the seats so that they become sustainable on their own. I can... I'm open to that argument. I'll have that conversation with you. I think that, based on what I said before, before, with the bleak and boring nature of a community without the arts, I think that there's an argument to be made for funding it like a public good, which is why I support these additional levels of funding. And which is why I will remind you that regional council voted yesterday in favor of reinstating funding for the museum in downtown Kitchener to its previous level. So that's about another $250,000 for the museum because council decided that there was an unintended consequence of their across-the-board 10% reduction in spending as a way of generating savings. I agree we have to be fiscally responsible right now. We essentially have to be fiscal hawks and keep a close eye on the budgets because so many people are struggling. But these opportunities for us to gather and watch a performance, to listen to a performance, to take in visual arts, to listen to a book talk, enrich us. They really do. And so I think investments in those areas help us to 
get out of the economic ruts that we're in. That's just my take on all of it. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is kind of tired of one of our reporters at City News. You'll find out who before noon today. Also, this is an historic day in Toronto Maple Leafs history. We will also get to that before noon. Right now, it's off to the City News Centre for an update. And then as we continue our celebration of Black History Month, it's Freedom A mixtape, live and unplugged. The story coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, this was a bit of an unintentional theme, but here we are talking about a performance coming up at the Registry Theatre in Kinchester. The unattentional theme, if you were listening just before that news update with Aaron, I was talking about why I believe a thriving arts and culture sector is so important to a community. And the Registry Theatre is one of those underappreciated, hidden little gems in our community, if I do say so myself. As we look ahead to next Friday... The 17th of February, there is a performance coming to the registry called Freedom, a mixtape live and unplugged. And here to talk with us more about it is Kira Allen, who's the executive director with Be Current Performing Arts. Kira, good morning. Hi, good morning. Could you start by telling us a little bit about Be Current? What uh, What's the group all about? How did you form? Yeah, so we were founded 30 years ago um, by the wonderful Audrey Zina Mandiela, who was is a fantastic playwright, performer, dub poet, director. Um, she wanted to create space for Black artists to um, explore, create. Um, it's one of the first uh, actual, you know, specifically dedicated. Um, theater companies that was just about, you know, black artists, because at the time there really wasn't anything like that in Toronto. Um, yeah, so that's, that's where we sort of originated from. And now we, um, we train, we, uh, produce, we present, uh, we collaborate with other theater companies. Uh, yeah, we do a lot of, we do a lot of great stuff. And all these decades later, still going strong. Yeah, yeah, still going strong. It's great to hear. Now, when you talk about a performance that has mixtape in the title, I think you capture a lot of attention, particularly of people of my vintage, Kira. But what is yeah. uh, what is Freedom Live and Unplugged all about? Yeah, so the show is um, was created by Marcel Stewart, um, the artistic director of Be Current Performing Arts. Uh, he was, at the time, um, living in St. Catharines, working at Suitcase and Point. Um, it was the pandemic. And, yeah, he was just really moved by um, and, and hurt by, to be honest, what was happening with black bodies, um, the murders, George Floyd. Um, he was moved to, to, to march um, in Toronto, and 
he was just floored by the different intersections of people marching together and coming together. And he was asking the question, like, what does freedom mean to us? Like, what is freedom to these folks and, and other folks? Really, it's a piece about asking about um, what freedom means um, to, to everyone. Um, and so he, he brought together a bunch of artists. Um, in St. Catharines and in the Niagara region, um, he asked people to submit their work. And he sort of just curated this, like a mixtape, um, this wonderful sort of symphony of, of voices from the Niagara region. And each person is sort of questioning and um, grappling with what does freedom mean to them? Um, and his own, he too is in the piece sort of in and out as a sort of narrative um, continuum uh, sort of keeping the piece, sort of like a like a DJ hopping in and out of a mixtape, um, and so yeah, that's how the piece that's how the pieces sort of um, came to be, and also what it is. I think it's so interesting as you describe that intersection of people that all came together, felt compelled to march all those years ago, and then around this idea of what does freedom mean? Because I think we'd agree that depending on who you ask, you're probably going to get a different answer. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's really what we see in the piece is that everybody has a very different, um, you know, association and very different approaches to it. So this sort of the different voices really, it's like, it's, it's really interesting to listen to. <laughs> what is it that you want the audience to come away with from this show, Kira? Yeah, I, I think the, the one of the major questions is that we want people to ask that question for themselves. You know, what what is freedom to them? Um, and also, one of the things that's really beautiful about the piece is that these artists um, come from such different walks of life. Some of them have, you know, totally different day careers, um, and other people are, you know, fully, like, all they do is art. And I think it's also important to, we want people to be able to see that they can make art, that they can be part of these conversations. Um, and that, uh, yeah, that it's, it's, they can be part of the, the, the artistic world and it, it, you know, anybody can make, create art. You know, I, I love what you just said there about some of these folks who have the quote unquote day jobs and they do art as a hobby, a passion pursuit, whatever it may be. And, and we all do have that ability within ourselves. And it makes me think more broadly of, arts and culture and and what it's like as an industry or for a performer today and we've been talking about it on the show actually quite a bit already this week you know be current as you've already described to us 30 plus years later continues to go strong but what's the what's the environment like for performers these days well you know that's a great question um it, it's it is it is hard i think right now we are in an interesting uh, point uh, coming out of the pandemic, we finally have everything open. A lot of projects have been pushed, um, but we also lost a lot of people. A lot of people um, left and have gone on to other industries, partly because a lot of the performers and artists didn't actually qualify for some of those benefits that were offered by the government during the pandemic. Um, and some people were just tired. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard being an artist. It's long hours. It's a lot of work. Um, and so we've lost some really great people, but we've also are in this point where audiences are still a little shy to come back to live performances that are not, you know, like music, of course, is 
um, always loved and, 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 and sports, but they haven't come back quite at the same volumes that we saw before the pandemic. Um, so that's something that we're, we're tra- chatting about a lot in the theater community. How can, how can we bring those folks back? Some of the, um, like Mervish, uh, they're doing great. Like the, a lot of folks have come back, but for a lot of the other people, um, there's still a bit of a, a hesitancy and we're, we're trying to come up with strategies to bring, bring people back into the, into the theaters. How is it that we can enjoy next weekend the performance of Freedom, a mixtape at the registry? Yeah, so tickets are available um, on our website, freedomamixtape.com. If you, if you go to that website, uh, you'll see the link to, to purchase tickets at the registry. Um, so that's, that's how you can, you can get tickets for the show, and there's a nice uh, discount right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an early bird discount that's still in place, so you can take advantage of that as well as if, if you get to the website and see that. Um, yeah, that's, that's how you get tickets. All right, we will make sure we point people in that direction, and we look forward to having uh, a mixtape performed live and unplugged at the registry next weekend. Kira, thanks for the work that you do and making time for the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Kira Allen is the executive director of Be Current Performing Arts. They are presenting Freedom, a mixtape, live and unplugged, at the Registry Theater next Saturday, the 17th of February. And tickets, just 16 bucks. Go to freedomamixtape.com or just find your way to the Registry Theater and you can buy your tickets that way as well. But uh, one of many performances happening during this Black History Month you'll enjoy at the Registry next Saturday, the 17th of February. Freedom, a mixtape live and unplugged. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, which reporter is it at City News that Ontario Premier Doug Ford seems a little bit exhausted by? And why, oh why, is this such an important day in the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I can promise you this much. No, it was not on this day in 1967 that the Leafs won the Stanley Cup. It was 1967 when the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup, but it certainly wasn't February the 7th. Uh, Those stories coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. I think I've shared with you before, when I first learned as a reporter many years ago that just because a high-profile politician is at a media event talking about one thing certainly does not mean you can't ask her or him about the other thing. I was working in Toronto many moons ago when the very colorful Mel Lastman was the mayor. And when I say very colorful, as you know, this is the guy that called in the army for support in clearing snow. And there's a famous photo of Mayor Mel in a tank pointing like, let's go or on the top of a truck. You know what I mean? He was just he was all about uh, the photo op or the controversial comment, which he had many of. So I was assigned to cover this event where. Uh, Mayor Mel had been declared an honorary leprechaun for some St. Patrick's Day event. So I dutifully, as the young reporter that I was, went down to 
cover that event and ask the mayor, you know, what he thinks of this opportunity. And it was while I was there that a reporter with the Toronto Sun actually uh, began grilling the mayor on a completely unrelated issue. And it dawned on me as I stood there in the scrum and listened to this reporter ask much more meaningful questions that, oh, I get it. Like, sure, it's all nice and it's a great little photo op and, you know, you can say how wonderful you think this St. Paddy's Day celebration is with you as the honorary leprechaun. But really, the issues of the day still need to be talked about. And that's what this reporter with The Sun way back when taught me in that moment. So it's not lost on me ever since that when a high-profile politician is hosting a media conference, whether they just want to talk about the funding they just gave to this organization or that organization, you can ask them about anything else when they start taking questions from the podium. And such was the case uh, earlier this week when Premier Doug Ford was at one announcement, but our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Richard Southern here with City News, wanted to continue asking questions of the Premier about the Service Ontario relocations to Staples and Walmart stores. As you know, Richard was first to break the story, how it's sole-sourced, there wasn't any sort of open bidding process, etc., And I'll let you judge for yourself after you listen to this whether or not you feel as though the Premier might be just a wee bit exhausted by our Richard Southern. Premier Richard Southern with City News. When I had a chance to speak with you last week about the Service Ontario changes, you said, quote, officials dealt with this, none of us us dealt with this. Uh, Were you aware of the changes before they went ahead and Premier does the buck not always stop with you? You know, Richard, man, you you gotta give this one up. Like, people love the fact that they can go into a place, be it Staples or other places that are already existing. It's like the comparator I have, Shoppers Drug Mart, you go into the post office. You know, people love the idea that it's 7 o'clock till sometimes up to 10 o'clock at night or, or 9 o'clock. It's about convenience. We're saving the taxpayers a million dollars. But, buddy, you got to get a new story, man. This is getting stale. I'm just telling you honestly, you do. Premier, we'll move on if you release the business case to back up that claim of a million dollar savings. Will you do that? It is. It is out there, and we'll get that for you, but you're you're like a dog on a bone on this thing. Anyways, the bone's getting thin. I'm sorry. Next question. I mean, at least he said he's sorry before next question. The bone's getting a little thin. Buddy, you got to get a new story. This one's getting kind of stale. I will say this. One of the main criticisms of our industry lately in media. It's a 24-hour news cycle, right? So there's always something to replace the previous thing. It's constantly in motion, and and we get criticized a lot for telling a story and then just kind of letting it go because we, too, have moved on to the next thing in that insatiable appetite of the 24-hour news cycle. Richard is not letting this go, but the Premier thinks the bone is getting a little thin. Uh, Hey, kudos to Dennis, who sent me an email to Mike at 570news.com, correctly identifying why this is such a significant day in Toronto Maple Leafs history. No, it was not on this day in 1967 when the Leafs last won a Stanley Cup, but it was on this day, February 7th, 1976, when Daryl Sittler, captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, scored not one... Not two, not even three or four, but ten points in one game in a Maple Leafs victory 
over the Boston Bruins. At the end of the second period, I had seven points, and we were in the dressing room, and our statistician came over to me, and he said, Daryl, I don't know if you know it, but if you get another one, you tie Rocket Richard's record from the, the 40s. So going into the third period, I knew I had a shot at maybe tying a record and then scored three goals after that. Three goals after that. He already had a hat trick in the second period. He gets another hat trick in the third. Six goals, four assists. The Leafs beat the Bruins 11-4 to on this day in 1976. And that record, 10 points in one game, stands to this very day. No Wayne Gretzky, no Mario Lemieux, no Sidney Crosby, no Connor McDavid, no Connor Bedard, yet and yet, have accomplished the same feat. Daryl Sittler, pride of St. Jacob's, Ontario, continues to hold the NHL record for points accumulated in a single game. And you wonder why I love the Maple Leafs, eh? Like, that guy was my man when I was a kid. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Just a couple minutes away from the noon hour, and of course, the noon hour marks the beginning of our 12 o'clock talk back when phone lines are open to you to begin the conversation. And I'm reflecting on a conversation Rob Snow had yesterday during his talk back hour in the afternoon. And that was around whether or not you believed that the next generation would have it as good as we have it or our parents have had it. This whole idea of intergenerational fairness. And I was thinking about that this morning as I listened to All News Mornings and the survey from BMO that talks about the cost of living being such that people aren't even thinking about retirement. They're just trying to make ends meet today. How can we possibly think about putting money away for our retirement when what we need to do is pay the bills that we're seeing right in front of us at this very moment. It's it's a really difficult problem to solve, especially as we live longer. How are we going to fund retirements that last upwards of 30 years? Maybe something we can discuss during the 12 o'clock talkback hour in the next 60 minutes. I got to say thank you to Robert and the team at Rogers TV Cable 20 for producing the TV side of this show as they do every day from 10 until noon. Really appreciate that. Glad we have our TV audience with us. We're going to send you to the City News Center for an update, and then we continue with the Mike Farwell Show. The 12 o'clock talkback hour is coming up. This is City News 570, and so long, Rogers TV. Take out the papers and the trash. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage outside. Or you don't go out Friday night. Yakety yak. Don't go back. Yakety yak time. It is the 12 o'clock talk back. 519 570 2545. Star 570 and 1 800 570 57. 15. Ranger Joe, start us off. Michael, how are you? Joseph, I'm well, thank you. How are you? 
I'm just finding Danny, buddy. Thanks for asking. Hey, there's uh, two things I'm phoning about. Uh, first one was I stayed up last night and watched that Edmonton-Las Vegas hockey game. Oh, you wanted to see if Edmonton would get the record. Yeah, Mike, I'll tell you something. That was one hell of a, what I would call playoff game. And, and I can't see, for instance, because we're both Leaf fans. Man, oh, man, I thought to myself, if the Leafs were up against any of these two teams in the playoffs, it's lights out, buddy. Like, Edmonton, most of the game... But then uh, Vegas won it finally. Eh? But, uh, yeah, it was a great hockey game. Okay, that's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, the other thing was uh, early on you had a um, uh, a segment on uh, the University of Waterloo uh, short funds, you know, like a deficit. And and I thought to myself, and I'm not trying to be smart here, like, like I'm just wondering, uh, they have about 1,000 acres of land that they own on the university grounds. So... Some of it, of course, has buildings on it, and I'm sure a lot of it is just open fields. Why don't they, if the governments can't come through and help them with more money, why don't they try to sell some of that land? And I'm not saying a lot, but uh, with the value of lands up in that area, and it might help. You know what I'm saying? What do you think, Mike? Joe, I think uh, it's the kind of idea that's probably been discussed before as the university tries to find its way in these current economic and political times, probably down the list of ideas that they might act on first. But hey, I don't think you take anything off the table when you feel as though you're getting shortchanged, certainly when it comes to the government funding that I think post-secondary institutions should be receiving. I mean, if we don't have a well-educated workforce of tomorrow... Uh, that's a detriment to all of us, isn't it? Steve, over to you on the 12 o'clock talk back. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Good. So, yeah, I just had a weekend tournament. I coached two hockey teams. Uh, we had an awesome tournament out in St. Catharines. They always do such a great job there with their facility. Um, but just a reminder to people out there who have kids in sports, we also saw the darker side a couple times this weekend. And I just wanted to talk quickly about pack mentality. Um, it's never a healthy thing. So if you guys ever find yourselves out there in a competitive sport and you don't like the way it goes down or there's something about the game that you don't like, you know, voice your opinion, you know, cheer. That's your right as a fan. But I would caution people to maybe when people realize, or even if they don't realize things are going too far, if you've got too many screaming voices, especially if you're outside and you're waving fingers at 13-year-old kids and you're uttering swear words, awesome to maybe take a step back reflect on it is that you're doing and maybe try and tamp down everybody else who's doing it with you uh, i know it's a slippery slope it's easy to say that in hindsight but uh good lord uh, some of these fans you know they take the game way too far especially in our instance where they actually beat us and it wasn't enough for them they they had to meet us outside uh, with middle fingers for my 13-year-old son uttering stuff at him. So, like I say, they take a deep look what you're doing. You know, does it benefit the sport? No. Does it benefit your team? No. So maybe just cut it out. And if you see other people doing it, cutting out, cut it out as well. Steve, appreciate the call and the reminder. It's an important one. Last time I checked, there were signs in arenas, certainly across this community, and I do believe province-wide, about fan etiquette, behavior, etc., and what behaviors will not be tolerated. I think we need to strengthen the consequences around the poor behavior and 
get to the point where fans might be removed from a game or even more games after that. But And I will admit to being a guy that was about as hot-headed as could be several decades ago, ultra-competitive. I still think I'm competitive, but I can keep it within the lines. And Steve's right. Like, just give your head a shake or go deep into your heart and do some searching to figure out what it is that's got you so wound up over a game that involves teenagers. Because if you want to turn the teenagers off being involved in the game, that's a good way to do it. And to Steve's point as well, involvement in sports is good for us. It is, on the whole, a good thing. Let's not ruin it. Let's not make it a bad thing. Over to Mark we go on the 12 o'clock talkback. Hello, Mark. From Ranger Joe to Ranger Mike. Ranger Mike and Ranger Joe and Ranger Mark. Thank you, Mike. Um, I remember that 10-point game in 76. Something else, eh? It was incredible. You were probably just a a youngster at the time. I was not quite five years of age, but you know what? I remember it, Mark. Unless I've just seen the highlights too many times in my life, I think I remember it. But I, boy, oh boy, that was my year. That was the year Lanny McDonald scored that goal against the Islanders. Oh, my goodness gracious. I remember that. I know, buddy. I know. Um, There's only two players that came close if I'm not mistaken, Mike. It was Lemieux and Gretzky. Uh, They had eight points in a game. Yeah, and you heard Daryl Sittler say in that clip we played that he was told during the intermission that he could uh, break Richard's mark of eight points. I did hear that. Yeah, Yeah. so, uh, I mean, lots of players, I think, have had eight, but nobody even nine and definitely not ten. Right. Does he still live in uh, St. Jacob's, Mike? Do you know? No, I think, well, I I don't believe he does. I think, actually, he's north of Toronto now, but I'm not positive, to be honest. Get him him on your show, Farsi. (laughs) All right, Mark. We'll see what we can do. Okay, Mike. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. I had reached out to try to get Daryl Sittler on the podcast quite some time ago. It didn't go very far. Maybe I need to try harder. This is your 12 o'clock talkback hour where you start the conversation. We look forward to hearing from you as we continue on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. The 12 o'clock talk back is your opportunity to start the conversation. I feel like all day long, I'm starting them. I'm starting them. I don't want to just give it all to you. I want you to give it back to me. 519-570-2545. Star 570. 1-800-570-5715. Kyle, good afternoon. Ranger Mike, it's regular caller Kyle here. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of Ranger going on in the first little bit. We did. I, uh, so, Ashley and I, we're going on to go see, right now we're on our way to Toronto to see the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs game tonight. It's her uh, first NHL game in her life. Uh, why would you torture her by taking her to a Leafs game? Like, go to a good game. That place is like a morgue. <laughs> she got free tickets. So okay. Really tickets and you know like we're, we're both cheap so i think we'll take free anytime right i'm with you i got two favorite kinds of beer cold and free for sure yeah so anyways that's all i want to say hopefully the hopefully the leafs win i'm not a leafs fan but you know what we're seeing toronto tonight and then in a couple of weeks we're going to montreal to see the montreal canadians play i know i can't say it on live 
but there you go, Mike. Have a good one. <laughs> All right, Kyle. I think I let that one slip. I was a little slow on my uh, hang-up finger there. You're not supposed... That's the team that shall not be named. I'm sorry. I was too busy thinking about the Leafs tonight and the Dallas Stars. So, really, it's one of those games where I don't think you can uh, go wrong. If you're a Leafs fan, the Leafs can win. And if you're not a Leafs fan, Pete DeBoer and Steve Spott, who used to coach here in Kitchener, can win. And Radic Faxa on the team as well. So there you go. Like, all around former Kitchener Rangers, Radic Faxa. So, I mean, I, I just don't think there's a lose. But I am cheering for the Leafs tonight. And goodness gracious, they need to find a way to start winning on home ice. What an embarrassment it's been. Hoy, yoy, yoy. Okay, over to Bob we go on the 12 o'clock talk back. Hello, Bob. Hey, Mike. Hi, Bob. Um, you talk about fans and you're getting on really. I'm sorry? Getting... When you were talking about fans being unruly? Oh, fans being unruly, yes. Well, I remember one time, believe it or not, I did go to a Leaf game. And I was at the game. And then I, there were a couple of people in front of me, must have had a few cold ones. And they were getting on the team. And the air was walking up and down. And I we called him over, he came over. And um, I said, Ask the usher if could get this guy a pair of skates because he wants to show the least how, it, how it's done. And the guy shut up for the rest of the night. Really? You shut down a heckler with that line, eh? Yeah. I was surprised, but yeah. It's a pretty good line. I might use it sometime. And it's nice to see that the conservatives are starting to show that they're not conservative anymore when they invite Tucker Carlson up to talk. There are a bunch of wingnuts in the conservative party, and that's why I would never vote for him again. Well, I think, okay, Bob, thanks for the call. I I think Tucker Carlson is a special kind of wingnut, but we'll just leave that there. Terry, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. I'm surprised you read that email this morning about the guy that said he was going to abandon your show. Why? I told you, that's that's one of my favorite kinds of feedback. It really is. I'm, I'm open for it, and I recognize that what we do is not going to be universally popular. I just thought the funny part was... His solution, because the regular callers and stuff were getting too repetitive in some of the content, but his solution is classic rock, which is one of the most repetitive formats in radio history. And it's oh a good format, God. but anyway. I would never, I would never listen to uh, any any music on the radio unless it was on uh, Sirius XM because there's no commercials on their music uh, uh, stations. But uh, who the hell wants to listen to uh, ra- music on the radio and listen to commercials like Hey, listen, out of an hour. <laughs> commercials are fantastic, okay? No, but you can, are... if you, I know that, but you okay. can also go on XM Sirius and get it for nothing. Like, you, don't, you don't listen to commercials if you listen to music. Well, you're paying for the service, too. You can, you're not That's getting it true. for nothing, yeah. Well, but you do get commercials on XM Sirius. Not, it's just not on the music uh, stations. But, Mike, I'll tell you, I remember that 76 game with Daryl Sittler. And uh, my brother, he he's, he was a big, I, I don't know if he still is, but he was a big fan of that team that you don't like that plays east of there. And, uh, and De La Fleur was his favorite player because I remember every time he played any sporting event or a sporting game, he always wore number 10. But I remember that night he goes, oh, man, look at this. I think I'm going to become a Leaf fan, which he never did. He was just kind of you know driving. But uh, it was an interesting night. But Durosel actually was on your radio station some years ago when Eric Droz was hosting it. And I called in to ask him a question regarding when he was traded to the Flyers. And, and then he asked me if I knew, out of the 11 goals that the Leafs scored that night, if I knew who the the one goal that he wasn't involved in in the point was. I, I couldn't remember. I, I said I think I said Ian Turnbull or somebody like that. But you know who it is, Mike? No. Or who it was? You don't want to take a guess? 
a goal scored that Sittler was not involved, involved. in. Yeah, the, the one point he didn't get. Uh, Barry Melrose. <laughs> I don't think he was a Leaf then. But okay. anyway, no, it was it was George Ferguson. I go, oh, yeah, I should have known that. But anyway, yeah, I remember that night. It was, it was We were watching it in the basement, taking shots against the wall because, you know, we always like to play around in the basement you know, the ball, with the ball hockey and the sticks, and then we were kind of watching that game, and I remember that. Oh, yeah, I'm going to ban the number 10 for the number 27, but it never happened. Anyway. You should have. You should have. Not, not me. Not oh, your me. buddy, I, your buddy. I, my brother. My yeah, brother. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he's a, he's he was true and blue, red, whatever they call it, red, blue, and white. Then, and he, I don't know if he, what he cheers for now. But anyway, Mike, it was an interesting topic. Yeah, I, I do, I do wish you would get Daryl Filler on your show again. Anyway, Mike, that's all I have to say. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Terry. Good to hear from you. I'm going to work on it, Mister Sittler. Please, I, I go to your grandmother's. Well, I, I think Grandma's gone now, unfortunately. But I go to Sittler's Bakery in Conestoga, and I'm a big fan, lifelong. So please, Mister Sittler, the player who on this day in 1976, captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, scored 10 points in one game. A feat that is yet to be duplicated. And by the way, another Toronto Maple Leaf, as pointed out by my buddy Phil via email, Ian Turnbull, five goals, one game, also a defenseman's record in the National Hockey League. Both of them Leafs, both of them holding records that, dare I say, shall never be broken. We continue with the 12 o'clock talk back hour. Stay with us on City News 570. It's true. I can't possibly be the only one with an opinion. And you know what they say about opinions, right? Everyone's got one just like, but here's the thing. I believe opinions ought to be shared. So let's do this. It's like a little share and tell on the show with the 12 o'clock talk back 519-570-2545 star 570 and 1-800-570-5715 nick good afternoon hey mike thanks for taking my call thanks for making it my pleasure hey listen i wanted to call about the conversations that you guys are having this morning about daycares um you know, it's it's interesting and, and quite frustrating, actually, because in the world that I'm in, you know, I know that there are so many private daycares that are looking for locations in our region today. And the reality is, is that we can talk as a region about, you know, creating all these new facilities on top of parking lots and this and that. The reality is the private sector will solve that problem if given the chance. The problem is is that between limitations with zoning on properties and the bureaucratic hoops that daycare operators have to jump through in order to open up a facility, it makes it incredibly hard to execute on opening new facilities. It's the same thing with the private school sector. There's so many private schools that want to open in our region And the reality is, is that for those same challenges, they can't do it. And and the funny thing is, is that private schools could double as daycare providers at the same time for those young children. And so I would, I think there needs there needs to be a bit of a reevaluation as it relates to how we solve this problem. Because I do believe the private sector is the, you know, they're willing to solve the problem. But like most government bodies, there's just so many hoops. But they make it really difficult. So you want to take it out of the public sector's hands and make it a private sector problem to solve? 
Yeah, I think that I think that there's more than enough private sector businesses and daycare operators that are willing to solve the problem, but it could be challenges from zoning to the building that they're going into to the land. And the other part of it as well is that, you know, you really, the, the easiest solution is to find existing buildings because the cost of construction nowadays is so high that, you know, it's, it's not that advantageous to build new. So we can look at our existing infrastructure that we have in the region and the private sector will go and buy those buildings and lease those buildings and convert them. But, you know, maybe they're not zoned properly. Maybe they're not configured exactly like, you know, the Ministry of Education requires. I think if they were a bit more flexible with these operators, I think the private sector could be a really good solution to solve the problem. All right, Nick. Appreciate the call and thanks for sharing your thoughts on it. Thanks. Another piece of the 12 o'clock talkback puzzle here today, reflecting on a conversation we had a couple hours ago. More than 9,000 children in the region awaiting child care spaces. We've got the $10 per day child care program funded federally through the provinces, and we're working on creative solutions within existing municipal facilities, schools, etc., to try to find ways to allow not-for-profit operators to get up and running. Nick thinks there's room here for the private sector as well. The market will solve this, says Nick. We'll take a break, get you an update from the City News Center, and then continue with the 12 o'clock talkback hour. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News. start this segment off with an email from Don who listens in from Clifford. Beautiful. Clifford, Ontario. Love to hear from you, Don, who writes to Mike at 570news.com. Hi, Mike. I enjoy your show. This is a great start. I shared earlier today some feedback from John, who is done with it. He said, I've, I've given up listening. I don't like this. I don't like that. I'm going back to listening to classic rock, which is also fine. You do you. There's a tuner on your radio for a reason but don does enjoy the show and he goes on to write to mike at 570news.com it's probably been a while since you addressed gas prices your station is good at informing us when prices are going to change but you never say why i find it maddening that we are given the price fluctuations from day to day but never why they are happening can you get someone on who can explain these changes Thank you for your time. Dawn from Clifford. Again, Dawn, really appreciate the email. Love that you're listening in from the beautiful community of Clifford. And I suppose I could. And and I'm open to it. I shouldn't be closed-minded about it. But even when we get people on to explain the changes in gas prices, it never satisfies me. And I've been I've been around this business long enough to remember a time where we, as consumers, as the people who buy the gasoline, we're going to boycott one of the big retailers one day. We're not going to buy gas at that particular retailer, and that's going to send the message to big oil that we're not going to take this lying down. 
So I was the reporter at that radio station. I was working in Toronto at the time, and they sent me out to one of the locations of that particular gasoline retailer to talk to people going there to fill up. I mean, if the boycott was to be have been followed, and this is before the days of social media, by the way, I guess we were doing this through petitions and word of mouth. Maybe those emails that you get, those chain emails telling you to boycott. Anyway, there I was, and there were the people filling up their vehicles. And I'm like, but why are you here? We're supposed to be boycotting this station today. Well, you know, I was on my way to work, and I, I needed the gas. What I have never understood is this. You see sometimes those big tanker trucks coming in and filling up the reservoirs at the gas station, right? They put, I don't know how many liters of fuel into one of those reservoirs so that when you take the nozzle off the pump and begin pumping, there's something coming out of that nozzle, right? And so I could go to the gas station that's down the street from me here at the boardwalk on my way to work this morning and pump some gas. And then I could do the same thing tomorrow morning, or dare I say, I could do the same thing later this afternoon And that same fuel that was delivered by that same tanker into that same reservoir, I could use the exact same gas pump. I could get my gas from the same nozzle. And it's going to be a different price later today or tomorrow. It is beyond maddening. And quite frankly, look, I know it's a commodity. It's traded. The price of oil is this at one minute and that at the next minute. I don't care. I wonder why. In all the places that we regulate, and Lord knows we regulate in this country. I think Nick kind of alluded to that in the call just before the update from the City News Center, talking about sort of layers of bureaucracy, the public sector kind of getting in the way of private schools, private daycares, etc. Of all the things that we regulate, I have no idea why we don't regulate the price of gasoline so that there is more of an assuredness of the price from one day to the next. Now, I'll grant you, like I used to scoff, especially when I drove less, and I don't drive much today either, but I'd see the lineups because, oh, the price is going up 10 cents after midnight tonight. Okay, so how big is the gas tank on your car? Maybe my 55 liter little tank isn't that big a deal. I know some of you with your trucks, you're getting 80 liters or more in there. But at 10 cents per liter, what are we talking about here? Five bucks, eight bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. Yeah, it's something. But based on what you're spending to fill the tank anyway, meh. I'm like, we really line up to save $3 or $4 or $7? I, I suppose. I remember a lineup I saw at a gas station when I was visiting Barbados. We were out on a tour, and there was this long line for gas, and somebody on the bus asked, or maybe the tour guide just told us, but regardless, he said, that's because the price is going up tomorrow. So the price is the price, and then the government tells you when it's going up. So if you want to save that 10 cents or a dollar, whatever it was, then you can do that. But then after that, it doesn't go up again until the government tells tells you it will, which could be weeks pay the same price i i would like it to be that way it's just not that way anyway don appreciate you listening to the show if we can get somebody to explain it in a satisfactory manner 
Maybe, just maybe, we will bring someone on who can explain these things, the fluctuations in gas prices. This is the Mike Farwell Show. It's the 12 o'clock talkback hour on City News 570. And the 12 o'clock talkback hour is when you talk back to us. 519-570-2545. Star 570-1-800-570-5715. Jason, good afternoon. Morning, Mike. Or Mike, I guess it's afternoon. I need a little help. So I've got a mac and cheese. I've got nachos. I have pizza dip. I have a mashed potato bar. I have uh, dry rub ribs coming to my Super Bowl party with a veggie tray and a fruit tray. But I'm, I'm still trying to decide if I should do, like, a baked ham with fresh buns or chicken wings. Now, I know chicken wings, you know, that's, that's, everybody has chicken wings at their, uh, at their Super Bowl parties. But I asked a few of my residents this morning, and they thought, well, maybe a baked ham might be something different. What do you think? I mean, the baked ham would be different, but I, I'd stick with the girl you brung to the dance. you got to go chicken wings for a Super Bowl party, don't you? Well, I could. One of my, one of my ladies said, well, why don't you do both? <laughs> I work in healthcare. <laughs> Why don't you do both, Jason? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough call, but I would I would stick to the chicken wings. Like I I think the baked ham is an interesting idea, but I don't know. Save it for another time. It's the Super Bowl. You got the good stuff. You need the chicken wings to go with it. All right, brother. Thanks for the advice. I'll send you a picture of my food. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, actually, don't send me a picture of the food. If it's one thing that chafes my chaps. Okay, there are a few things, but these are one of the small nits I like to pick. Food pictures. Like, honestly, eat the damn food. Stop with the picture taking of the food. But you want to show off your Super Bowl spread, hey, fill your boots. And get the chicken wings. For the love of Pete, get the chicken wings. Chris, good afternoon. Yeah, hold on to your liberal wallet on the gas thing. It went up yesterday, three cents. Oh, but Chris, you can't say liberal wallet. This has been going on since uh, the dawn of time. Come on. Are you you talking about what's going to happen with the... um uh, the carbon tax on April the 1st and all these other ex- taxes taxes that nobody but the liberals put on it. I just say liberal wallet just because everybody else is picking on Trudeau. But hang on to your wallets on the gas part because it's not over. Ten cents today, wait till April of Fool's, April the 1st, it's going up. And then we have that extra uh, tax on it that we got last year. Was it the July for, uh, before that? There's way too much tax on the gas. And if you think electric vehicles are going to save the planet, there's more input cost on electric vehicle than people realize. And uh, these uh, four-cylinder and three-cylinder gas-sipping cars, uh, they might be the answer. Well, I, I don't know that they're the answer, but I, I do not disagree that we have challenges on the road ahead, pun intended, to an all-electric vehicle fleet by 2035. That is for sure. Well, that's just another mandate, right? Yeah, and you know what? It'll. I think it'll be like our uh, our climate targets, and we'll probably miss the target and and push it out from there. Actually, but. we will we will miss them. But a lot of people are talking about, you know, the mandates for the vaccines. Well, is this another mandate for electric cars that we're putting on? Because most countries can't um, most countries can't uh, deal with it. And ask Ford why they're laying off so many people because the electric vehicles aren't selling. Oh, listen, you don't have to convince me of that. I I recognize it. I think until we get to mass production uh we're not going to see costs come down to a point that people can afford them and maybe maybe that's the social engineering that's at play here chris maybe that's what it's all about no more cars 
Ford Ford is in debt. $128 billion and are losing $35,000. Wait a minute. $128 billion? The you Ford Motor Company? I, I will. I will. I looked it, I looked it up this morning. Just this morning? Okay, Ford tell me your source. If you looked it up this morning, what was your source? Um, uh, the, uh, the president of Ford. Well, <laughs> you talked to him directly? It was on the news yesterday. It was on, the, it was on your news yesterday that Ford has, has issues... They're laying off people. All these battery plants they're building are going to be for naught. That's going to be the biggest scam in history. But Ford is having a big problem. The 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 best truck that they sell is a Ford um, F one fifty. Yeah, everybody loves the F one fifty. And the Lightning is, is they're laying off people because they're only going to make half of them. People aren't buying any uh, any of these trucks anymore. The Ford Mustang E is gone too. So there's a lot of issues there. And I'm not saying Doctor Doctor Google's right all the time, but you know what? I looked at this this morning, and I go, "Yeah, you're 100 percent." Where right. did you look at this money. this morning? Here's here's money. here's a headline that says Ford's EV business lost two billion dollars. That's a long way from 128 billion. Lost I'm just I, I didn't hear what you heard. So do you know what debt is compared to loss? They're in debt. They're I understand. I understand that. I'm just telling you what the headline that comes up is a loss of two billion, not a hundred. Like a, that's a big difference. They are in debt, and they were talking about, you know... The yeah, but how deep in debt, Chris? Like, you gotta, like, you got to help me out here. You know that, right? Yeah, and you got to help help me out, too, because I'm not always wrong. I'm wrong most of the time, according to you, but as far as, far as the, the EV stuff goes and gasoline-powered cars, Ford, it, it said, and you can check it out, maybe I'm wrong, but they're losing, like, uh, 17 or... With a seventeen percent discounts they're doing for cars to get rid of them. Okay, they have so many cars parked that they can't sell. Help me out. You said you you said you heard it on this radio station yesterday. When? Tell me a time and I can find it. Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I was driving to where I was going, and someone said, "I just I just came from listening my car. I was listening radio station, and and they were talking about." Oh, so now you didn't hear it yourself. Somebody told you they heard it. Oh, Chris, it's breaking down for you here. You know what, Mike? Mike. Come on, you know, like meet me halfway here. I'm trying. I'm honestly trying. No, you're you not s- trying. you you're, said, you're, "Hang you're, on." You're just trying to. No, you're I'm just trying to beat me up on what I'm right on. I'm not because- trying to beat you up, Chris. On like honestly, you said you just read it this morning. I asked where you read it so I can check too because I didn't read it. You said you heard it on the station yesterday, so I asked you what time so I can because I have the ability to go back and look it up. But now you told me you heard it from somebody else, so you're not helping me. 570 news this morning on my computer. Now it's this the morning. Oh, my God. And I went down and I checked I, ch- I checked some stuff. W- what difference does it make? Well, the, I just... point here, the point here is, Mike, the point is that we are way behind as far as electric goes that we're not... People are losing money on electric vehicles. Okay. The, the economy isn't doing very well, and they're not going to save our planet. Okay. I, I get you. I, I, I'm just asking, like, if you heard it this morning or you read it this morning, I didn't. And I think that I would remember, or it might be more widely reported, that there's this $128 billion debt. That's all I'm saying. And I would love to learn more. That's all. We'll take a break. I'm going to do some Googling, and we'll come back with more of the 12 o'clock talkback. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. All right. Thank you, Chris, for pointing us in a roundabout way to the Ford Motor Company's reported total debt in 2022 of around $139 billion. That, by the way is not the automaker. It's not even in the top five of automakers with the largest debt. So maybe 
when you have revenues in the billions too. You carry that level of debt. Ford also lost, according to Reuters, an estimated $36,000 on each of the 36,000 EVs it delivered to dealers in the third quarter. If the general point here is that we're struggling on the transition to EVs, I am with you 100%, sir. Gladly would I be with you more percents if I could give more than 100 uh, back to the phones. Jim, good afternoon. Heard, uh, thanks, Mike. I heard you uh, talking to the University of Waterloo today. I'd like to mention something else. There's a 10% tuition cut by the Ford government, and then they froze the tuition since, I believe, 2019. They're starving out the universities, and I believe it's, and I don't believe it's been stated already, the universities are looking for private funding. We've got a uh, government that's moving us towards uh, private universities and small public universities called colleges. They're looking south of the border and, as usual, taking their ideas from there. There's a university in London, the only all-women's university in Canada, been there over 100 years. They're closing because of being decimated with lack of funding from the province. Thanks for taking my call, Mike. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. It's always nice to hear from you. And Yeah, it's one of those things, when we talked about it earlier, the question becomes, is the funding of higher education a public good? And if we are starving those institutions, how do they go about survival? Interesting times, for sure. Speaking of time, it's time for us to say farewell for another day. Rob Snow, and now you know, is standing by to take you through until 3 o'clock and then all news afternoons. At that time, as I look ahead at our show tomorrow, are the days numbered, in fact, maybe even over for flag raiders in our community? Plus, what is the Taylor Swift effect and what will it have on the Super Bowl? And aggregate, how much more of it do we need to extract in this province? We'll have those conversations and more on the program tomorrow. Devin Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.